Genesis 14, 17. 14, 17 to 24. Abraham meets Melchizedek, or Melchizedek meets Abraham, and Abraham also has an exchange with the king of Sodom after the battle. 14, 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom who went out to meet him, uh, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaved, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. In verse 17, after the, this defeat, the king of Sodom comes to meet him, and he comes to meet him in this valley that's there on the eastern side of the, uh, of the land of Canaan. <clears throat> it's a north-south uh, area, King's Valley, King's Highway, uh, all there on that side. And that is also in the locality of Sodom. The king of Sodom comes. Not only does he come, but Melchizedek comes. And of the two, of course, the king of Sodom was a wicked king, and Melchizedek is a righteous king. A wicked king and a righteous king. And notice the interaction that Abraham has with these two kings, with the wicked one and with the righteous one. Verse 18, first is the righteous one. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. Melchizedek... It says here he's the king of Salem. Salem, according to Psalm 76, verse 2, is another word for Jerusalem, according to Psalm 76, 2. That is the primary interpretation. That's the interpretation I hold to that one, that it is a synonym of the word Jerusalem or the city of Jerusalem. Now, there is another place in the northern part of the land of Israel or Canaan called Salim or Salem. And this term is used a couple of times in the Bible. You might recall this is where John the Baptist baptized uh, near that place in Anon near Salim in John chapter 3, verse 23. It may be that that is what the place is where Mel Melchizedek is from. However... Because we're talking about Melchizedek, and because Jerusalem is so central and important in the Bible, it is most likely the case that when it says he's king of Salem, it has to do with Jerusalem, not with this small town in the northern part of the land of Israel. But I also actually think that when it's talking about Jerusalem, it's not talking about the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem, Amen. the heavenly Zion that he is the king of the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Salim. That's where he's from. This 
has a bearing on the interpretation of who this Melchizedek is. Among interpreters throughout history, among conservative Jewish and Christian interpreters, the predominance has been to say that this Melchizedek was Shem, the son of Noah, who would have still been alive in the time of Abraham. The majority of interpreters have said that this is another name for Shem. Shem, who was a faithful man, a man of God, a prophet, and he was a teacher and a priest at that time and a contemporary of Abraham living there in Jerusalem at that time. That's what they say. Others say that he was a Canaanite king and priest of the city of Jerusalem, a Canaanite king and priest of, of Jerusalem, and a believer who becomes a type of Christ, a believer who is a type of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate king of kings and great high priest. And then thirdly, that this Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, pre-incarnate Christ. And I believe that that is the best interpretation. That does, I think, the most justice to who Melchizedek is here and what is said of him in Psalm 110 and what's said in Hebrews chapter 7, especially Hebrews 7. Melchizedek is mentioned from chapter 5 onward, but especially in chapter 7, he is explained. And we'll go to that ch chapter. Uh, actually, let's go to that chapter right now, because it will further explain who he is and confirm our interpretation. Hebrews 7, verse 1. Hebrews 7, verse 1. We'll, we'll read verses 1 to 10. Hebrews 7, 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the God most, uh, of, most, of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham." But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And, so to speak, though through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What does our scripture here say? It says that this Melchizedek was the king of Salem, verse 1, priest of the Most High God. King of Salem. So he confirms what we have already seen in Genesis 14. These are the same words found there. He, he was returning after the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Verse 2. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, 
Abraham paid tithes. The lesser in rank pays tithes to the higher in rank. The one with the lesser office or station pays tithes to the one who has a higher office or station. That's the way it works. And that's why he says, uh, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater, and so forth. And then in verse 2, by the translation of his name, he's king of righteousness. That shows that the apostle, who's writing in the Greek language, he knew Hebrew, or at least he knew enough Hebrew to translate Melchizedek, because Melchizedek in Hebrew means king of righteousness. That's what the name means. Um, Melchi means king of, and Sedek, righteousness. So king of righteousness. And also, he calls him king of uh, Salem, or king of peace. King of peace, king of Salem. Salem, or Shalem, in Hebrew, it means peace. Also the word shalom, which more people know than Salem, but both of these words in Hebrew are the word for peace. And he knew that, king of peace. Verse 3, he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Who does that rule out? It rules out Shem, because we do know who his father was. We don't know who his uh, mother was, except to say she was the wife of Noah, but we don't know her by name or her pedigree. We don't know that. But we do know that his mother is mentioned or, or implied as, as the wife of Noah. We do know that Shem has a genealogy. He had beginning of days and he had end of life because it tells us that he died, right? We know that he died. Right. So well, the only ones who did not die were uh, Elijah in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapters 1 and 2, and um, Enoch in Genesis 5, 21 to 24. These are the two who did not die in the Old Testament. But otherwise, everyone else died in the Old Testament. This verse, verse 3, rules out the interpretation that it was Shem. It doesn't, I know, rule out the interpretation that it was a Canaanite king who was a priest of God Most High. But I think that from what we know of Christ and the types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament it's likely that this is um, Christ himself. If we take the interpretation that Salem is a synonym for the heavenly Jerusalem, or that is the name of the heavenly city, Salem, Jerusalem, Zion in heaven. Um, okay, then verse 3 says, He is made like the Son of God. He abides a priest perpetually. How could he be a priest perpetually. How could Melchizedek be a priest forever, perpetually? How could he unless he were Christ himself, right. is my point. Because we do know that the reason for priesthoods to transfer from one generation to the next generation, from father to son, has to do with the death of the father. If the father did not die, then he could continue as a priest. If there was no need for him to retire and then later die, there would be no need for there to be a successor, his sons, whether in the tribe of Levi or in the family of Aaron. Those would be unnecessary, which is an argument made later in Hebrews chapter 7. 
But in this case, he's a priest perpetually. Why? Likely because Christ is the eternal king, the eternal priest. He came temporarily out of heaven, manifested himself to Abraham, and that's what's being described. And we have to consider that this Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, which is another point. If he were merely a Canaanite convert and king and priest, in that way he would not be superior to Abraham because Abraham is the model of faith throughout the whole Bible. He is the model of faith and obedience throughout the whole Bible. But notice that our author here in Hebrews 7, 4 to 10 makes Melchizedek superior to Abraham. And Abraham knew of this superiority. Abraham knew it. Verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, there he's implying, the man of faith, the patriarch, he even recognized, Abraham recognized his place under Melchizedek's authority because Abraham gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Verses 5 to 10 say that later in the tribe of Levi, the common people were supposed to tithe to the Levites. And so the Levites had the office of priests, so their rank in terms of office was higher than the common people. And the people were supposed to tithe to the Levites. But to whom did Levi tithe? Levi was in the loins of Abraham. This is similar to Romans 5 where we all sinned when Adam sinned. The corporate representation of Adam toward the rest of mankind, his posterity, we all sinned when Adam sinned. So in the same way, Levi, who lived later, and the tribe that lived later than Abraham, they tithed when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. All this shows that Abraham knew that he was lesser in rank than Melchizedek. And how could that be unless Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ who came from the heavenly Salem, the heavenly Jerusalem? Back to Genesis. Genesis 14, 14, 18. It also says that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. Bread and wine. Now, this word for bread may be specifically bread, only bread, or it may be a term used for a meal or food, which included bread, because that would be a major part of the meal. The bread alone or a meal that included bread and wine. And this is, for him to bring this out, he brings it out as refreshment and in celebration of the victory. That's why he's bringing it out. But in terms of typology, does this not typify the Lord's Supper sure. typifies the Lord's Supper when we celebrate the Lord's Supper with bread and wine. Verse 18. Now he was priest of God Most High. He was priest of God Most High. Moses, by the Spirit, tells us who he was, identifies him as being a man of God, a righteous man, not a wicked man like the, uh, the king of Sodom, a righteous man. Then 19, verse 19, and he, Melchizedek, that is, blessed him, Abraham. Don't get those pronouns confused. 
Some interpreters and commentators and scholars, so-called, get them confused and say that Abraham blessed Melchizedek. No, it was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham. He blessed him as a priest. He blessed Abraham. And remember in Hebrews 7, it did tell us who blessed whom. It says in verse 7, Hebrews 7, 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The lesser is blessed by the greater. So that is Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. This is similar to the Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. Numbers 6, 24 to 26, may the Lord bless the, the, the priests of Aaron's line were supposed to bless the common people in worship and they would say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. That was the kind of blessing that Melchizedek pronounced on Abraham. And not only does he bless Abraham, he blesses Abraham in invoking the name of God so that God would give Abraham good things, blessings, spiritual and material. That's the purpose of the priest blessing the people. Melchizedek blessing Abraham for spiritual and material blessings to rest on the individual who receives the blessing. But then verse 19 uses the word blessed in another way. In the second usage, blessed be... Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. The second use is in verse 20, actually. And blessed be God Most High. That is, Melchizedek praises God Most High. When we, as humans, and when we, as inferior in rank and position and in nature to God, bless God, we are praising Him, we're exalting Him, we're giving thanks to Him, we're giving everything that's due to Him and glorifying Him that way when we bless God. That's what Melchizedek does. That is, I believe, the Son of God blessing or praising the Father. Remember even in Ephesians 2, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses in verse 11 that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's to the glory of God the Father. Even when Christ serves and ministers, He glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. Who is He? Who is this God? He is the possessor or creator of heaven and earth. The possessor or the creator of heaven and earth. When God created, and even now as he possesses and sustains the heavens and the earth. This God is a God of miracles. No this God is a God of spiritual realities, of life, of eternal life. That's why he's blessing the God who created and possesses heaven and earth. He's praising him because he has manifested some of that miraculous power in the life of Abraham. How? He just delivered Abraham miraculously from these foreign kings. He gave him victory. He was able to recover everything without loss of life and without loss of property. He recovered all, and that's why he's praised. 
This is always what the Bible does. It goes back to God as creator and redeemer. God is creator and redeemer. Constantly, that is the focus of Scripture. If we believe he is the creator, as the Bible uh, describes him, then we will believe he is the redeemer. If we deny he is the creator, as the Bible explains, then we will deny that he is the redeemer. If you see this throughout history, you will, and even on our modern period, you will see that that is consistently the way it happens. When people deny God as creator, the way the Bible describes, creating in six 24-hour days, about 6,000 years ago, when they deny that, inevitably, their view of salvation, their view of redemption is compromised. And it will show up. If you listen carefully enough, you will see how they compromise redemption. Verse 20. At the last part of verse 20, it says that God was the one who delivered your enemies into your hand. This is how we know, since it's Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, blessing Abraham and praising God, he acknowledges that Abraham's victory did not come because of Abraham's skill. It did not come because of Abraham's wisdom. It did not come because of Abraham's strength or even the strength of his army. It did not happen ultimately that way. It happened because God caused it to happen. Because God caused it to happen, it happened by means of Abraham, but not fundamentally or efficiently. The efficient ultimate cause was not Abraham. He was the secondary cause, the secondary reason. The ultimate reason was God, which also proves that Abraham's Abraham's campaign, military campaign, was not a sinful campaign. It was a righteous one, God-ordained campaign. Other examples of God doing this, using this expression, is in Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3 and Judges chapters 2 and 3. Look quickly at Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy 2, verse 30. We'll just read verses 30 and 31. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as as he is today. And the Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess his land. Chapter 3, Deuteronomy 3, verse 1. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and O king of Bashan, with all his people, came out to meet us in battle at Adrei. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered Og also, king of Bashan, with all his people into our hand, and we smote them until no survivor was left. This expression clearly shows God is the one, the source of this victory. So Abraham knew, as Melchizedek blesses him, that it was not because of his might, not because of his strength, not because of his wisdom, not because of his riches, alluding to Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, let not the mighty man boast of his might, nor let 
The wise man boasts of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. That's the way Abraham was. That's why the favor of God was on him and granted him victory in this way. Also, verse 20, it ends with this note, and he gave him a tenth of all. And he gave him a tenth of all. We cannot here also confuse who the he and the him are. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. This expression or this word tithe or tithing means a tenth. A tenth of what is owned is given to the priest here. That's what Abraham did. Not only did Abraham do this, but Jacob did this in, in Genesis 28-22. In Genesis 28-22, Jacob did the same. He, he promises. It doesn't actually record that he did it, but he did promise that if he returned to Canaan safely, that he would give to God a tenth of all. Jacob understood that principle of giving a tenth to the Lord and the, the Lord's work. Here, this raises a question as to whether tithing is, uh, is for the New Testament or for the Christian now or not. I believe the answer is yes. I believe that it's not bound up or restricted to the law of Moses. Right. Because this is pre-Mosaic. Just as we said in the previous session about warfare being pre-Mosaic, the same thing here. This is also pre-Mosaic, and therefore it is for the Christian to practice. Now, detractors from that position will say, well, there's some people who give 10% and they're going to hell. Of course. Of course. There are many people who come to worship and they're still going to hell. Many people who have the name John or Elizabeth and they're still going to hell. That is, of course, the case. Those things do happen. Um, So the real issue is, are we doing it with the right heart? Are we doing it with the right motive? Is that the reason why we're doing it? And if we're doing it with the right heart, with the right motive, with the proper intentions, in faith to glorify God, then God's pleased with it. And that expectation of doing it willingly, voluntarily, from a generous heart, a heart to please God, is there in the Old Testament too. It's in many places in the Old Testament to give to God, not under compulsion, but in faith to give to God. For example, we have this happening even when Moses existed. In the time of Moses, Moses expected the people to give willingly, to give voluntarily, and they did so. In the time of Moses, we can read the first example is in Exodus, Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter uh, 31, Exodus chapter, no, uh, Exodus chapter Uh, 35, 29. Exodus 35, 29. 35, 29. The Israelites, all the men and women, whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought 
a free will offering to the Lord. They brought a free will offering to the Lord. And then in 36, in chapter 36, 36 verse 3, And they received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary, and they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing, and they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more, for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. In the time of Moses, when he is delivering the law to them, he even expected them to bring their offerings with a generous heart, with a willing heart. And they did, so much that he had to tell them to quit doing it. And that's also a New Testament principle, to bring it willingly, generously, cheerfully, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 21, back to Genesis 14, 14, 21. Now we pick up again with the king of Sodom, 21 to 24. We note that the righteous king is embedded right there in the middle of a wicked king. So there in the Bible is a clear contrast between the way that Abraham behaved toward the righteous king, the priest of God Most High, and the wicked king, There's a clear distinction. There was a different expectation that Abraham knew that was expected of him. Verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. (laughs) And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Presumably, Abraham, before the battle, he had vowed to God, he had sworn to God that he would not take anything from the king of Sodom, the biggest of all the cities, but probably the most wicked of all the cities, the king of Sodom. He would not take anything from him, even though what Abraham was going to do in his campaign was going to benefit that king, secondarily benefit him. Primarily, he was going out to benefit Lot and all the relatives that were taken. He went out to do that, to recover Lot. But though he recovered Lot, he secondarily benefited the king of Sodom. He had determined that he would not have associations monetarily like this with such a wicked king. He would have nothing to do with him. And he did not want that wicked king to say that after I have, uh, Abraham has had victory, that what he brought back from the battle, that he was going to give the king of Sodom some of Abraham's possessions. Because they were rightfully Abraham's at that point, right? right? When the victor in a battle wins that battle, whatever he has from the enemies, that is his payment. That's a part of his wages when the soldier defeats the enemy. 
So he can take and he can take the, the pillage of the war back to his home country and enjoy those provisions and distribute those provisions. That's the nature of warfare. And Abraham had that. The king of Sodom knew that, but Abraham said, I'm not going to give anything or, or take anything from the king of Sodom. I don't want him to say, you take all this that you recovered for me. No, I don't want that. I'm going to give it all back to you. I don't want it. I did not go for the money. I did not go for the possessions. I did not go to loot my enemy. I did not go for that purpose. And I don't want to associate with you. I don't want you to say that you enriched me. I don't want that. He says, a thread or sandal thong. If this word thread is translated hair, so Abraham's saying, from your hair to your sandal, from, from top to bottom, from head to toe, I don't want anything. I don't want to do anything or take anything like that from you. This reminds us, and, and then only the wages and what is due to the others, because the others did not swear this oath. Only Abraham did. The others did not. So they can take whatever they want and what is due to them, but I'm not going to do that. What's Abraham practicing here? He's practicing separation. He understands that there is a point at which we can work with wicked people, unbelieving people, but then you have to understand, biblically speaking, what the boundaries are, how far you can go. You cannot indulge and, and mingle and mix with the people of the world. Our first example is in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. James 4, verses 1 to 4. James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we are a friend of the world, he says categorically we are an enemy of God. We have to keep our distance from the wicked world. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. An enemy of God, as James said. The love of the Father is not in him if we love the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. That's what Abraham knew. He knew to do the will of God. And those who do the will of God abide forever. And our last passage is 2 Corinthians 6. 14, 6, 14 to 18. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial is another word for Satan. 
Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's why Abraham resisted the king of Sodom. And it's likely that he had a sense of how wicked they were and ultimately that they would have to be punished and he did not want to be associated with those people as they were punished later in Genesis 18 and 19. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.